Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Hey now. And today we're continuing our series on building adventures uh, with a discussion of the book from Goodman Games, How to Write Adventure Modules That Don't Suck. Yes. Which is a really long title, but uh, but it's really to the point as well. Yes, that's true. Uh, this this is a series of uh, essays um, from various RPG authors concerning different topics on good game mastering, uh, good construction of adventures for both your personal players at the table and quite possibly for uh, you know, submission for publication, especially when it gets to uh, Mr. Goodman's essay himself. He speaks about what he is precisely looking for in a submission. So right. if you're looking to submit something to one of these these companies that do modules, it's, it's worth picking up for that essay alone. Right. Well, it, you, if you, I mean, honestly, if you're going to submit to uh, companies to try and get your, your dungeons or whatever published, um, you should definitely get their style guide and their requirements and all of that before you start randomly submitting stuff. Right. And, and coming, coming from the world of, of, uh, fiction writing, um, they also tell you, you should, you know, if you're submitting to a magazine, read the magazine. So if you're submitting to a company that publishes adventures for role-playing, you should read a few of their adventures to see what type of stuff that they're doing. Which is kind of funny. Uh, because I think only one of these um, these essays delved into that exact subject. Of if, if you're going to be submitting, you should be familiar with the products that that company puts out mm -hmm. and the type of things that they're looking for. Uh, for example, if you're going to be submitting uh, for Dungeon Crawl Classics, maybe you should pick up a couple of Dungeon Crawl classics by various authors and read mm -hmm. through them um, it goes without saying you should be familiar with the system that you're writing for exactly you should be familiar with the system that you're writing for what they're publishing um, you really should be familiar with the overall history of uh, in in particular if you're thinking about something like dungeon crawl classics with the history of role-playing games in the fantasy setting because you don't really want to reinvent the wheel and create an adventure that's already been done. Right. And and I can't stress this enough, know the tone of the company that you're you're submitting to. Uh, for example, Dungeon Crawl Classics has a certain flavor about their stories uh, that is different from something like uh, uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which is going to be different from... Uh, Hyperborea, what is it? Astonishing Sword and Sorcery. Yeah, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Right, which are all three very similar games mm -hmm. um, in terms of rules. But the, the tone of what they publish as modules, as adventure modules, is completely different. Exactly. Now, when it comes to creating something for your own table, uh, the sky's the limit. I mean, you know, the, the advice that's offered within this book is is helpful uh, as a refresher. It's a nice little reference guide 
Uh, one of the things that's really interesting and struck me about the book in particular was that uh, each essay is followed up with an, what they call an encounter, which is a scenario that illustrates the points that they were trying to make. Right. And Some are illustrated in, better than others. Mm -hmm. Yes. And some of the advice is, is, is better than other advice. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that's talked about in this book, uh, you can get on any number of YouTube channels uh, dedicated to the hobby of role-playing. Uh, there's a lot of folks uh, who do Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, there's guys like uh, Matt Colville. Uh, even Matt Mercer gets involved sometimes. Numerous other channels. Hey, Matt Mercer? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Who? <laughs> um, numerous channels are, are involved with the hobby of role-playing, in particular uh, focusing on the popularity of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. And there are all types of tips about how to be a good game master. Right. And in, in creating interesting adventures. Uh, this does have kind of a, a focus toward... Uh, folks who write adventures who want to have adventures published for other people. Right. And honestly, that's why I, I bought the thing mm -hmm. originally. Right. But, you know, first and foremost, you know, you want, you want to tell a, a, a role-playing game or any session is a chapter or a section of a story. And you want to make sure that you write a good story. Well, it can be. I mean, mm -hmm. you can also have, you know, just a dungeon crawl just to have a dungeon crawl. Well, I mean, even a dungeon crawl for shits and giggles is, has kind of a narrative to it. It's just a more open kind of narrative. But a lot of these essays focus on both aspects. One, you know, in, in, in creating a narrative adventure setting and the other creating a, a dungeon crawl type of, of environment. Um, one thing that I did notice is it does heavily lean toward the fantasy role-playing side. Um, it's almost exclusively fantasy mm -hmm. role-playing. There is one essay um, written by um, one of the guys involved with uh, Metamorphosis Alpha and the author of Gamma World. Mm -hmm. um, the first edition, Woo uh, where um, it specifically talks about uh, sci-fi settings, mm -hmm. um, or or the examples he uses are sci-fi setting examples, and there is a small nod to Call of Cthulhu in there, mm -hmm. uh, almost jokingly, because it's about uh, there's an essay about killing party members, right, and. Uh, it says Call of Cthulhu notwithstanding. That's, <laughs> well, that's one of the things Call of Cthulhu is most famous for is right. player character death. Well, now, not not to to disparage Goodman Games or anything, because you know I've I've read through a bunch of their their stuff and they're fine fine scenarios, and they do write um, Call of Cthulhu. They have a Call of Cthulhu line that they published, mm -hmm. Age of Cthulhu. Right. Um, but in my opinion, writing for Call of Cthulhu is a completely different beast than writing for a fantasy adventure game. 
because because the goals of the game are are different. Mm-hmm. And where, whereas a lot of the advice in this particular book is talking about you know how to uh, get players interested, um, whether it's by like good story hooks or just or you know floral descriptions of environments, uh, stuff like that. Uh, which applies to Call of Cthulhu. Don't get me wrong, um, but a lot, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the advice is about you know staggering, um, the uh, encounters. Mm-hmm. You know how to build encounters up to a climax and that kind of thing. And right. you know, how, how, to, how to make encounters fair for your party of players. Right, which in a in a fantasy role playing game, I agree, especially like like a D and D setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree that 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 is definitely um, one of the one of the key, I guess, arts of being a dungeon master. D and D is creating balanced encounters, but in Call of Cthulhu, there's no such fucking thing. <laughs> right, yep. because everything can kill you. Mm-hmm. With, you know, including including, but not limited to the the standard run of the mill cultist. Yeah, you can get killed by ninja. Yep, unless your GM is really looking for a good pulpy action sequence. Now, of course, that makes you know, mentioning Pulp Cthulhu kind of turns everything on its head, because really, Pulp Cthulhu as a as a setting and a rule and a rule system is kind of the halfway point. Between yeah. a, a Call of Cthulhu setting and a dungeon crawl type of setting, mm-hmm. it it has all of the elements of Call of Cthulhu, but it also has a more action adventure type of um, uh, framing device. Right. So you know you want you want Indiana, you know you're trying to be more Indiana Jones. So really, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff regarding dungeon crawls. And, and making interesting uh, encounters and things like that could be applied to Pulp Cthulhu. Yeah. Uh, much easier than standard Call of Cthulhu. Yes. As so, players have more of a chance. Right. Now, the way I judged a lot of these essays was on how the encounter um, illustrated the points they were trying to make and how playable the encounter was realistically right. playable. Right. Um, so there were a couple that uh, were not even encounters really, uh, but they were just little mini pieces of fiction in the second person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, literally there were a couple here where, you know, the, the author would make a big um, point about um, including all five senses, you know, being, you know, not being uh, typical in your description of things, you know, to really like you know, get into it instead of like in a hallway, you're in like a, you know, an indigo cavern with blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And the encounter that they wrote was a non, a non encounter. Uh, there were no choices, no nothing. It was just like, you know, your party wakes up and the cleric sees this. And then the wizard does that, and it's re- it was really it wasn't a game, right? It was just like a narration sequence, right? And there were a couple in there that were like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the things were covered 
uh, double in in the uh, favorite adventure modules and what we learned from them mm -hmm. that we reviewed uh, in the previous episode. Um, things like you know how to create good villains. I, I would say other than other than Goodman's piece about um, you know writing the adventure not modules and what he looks for to publish them. Um, probably one of the most interesting pieces in this book was the uh, uh, one about making your environments make sense. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really useful. Right. Um, you know, although sometimes, and we, we discussed this in the previous episode, that there are some dungeon modules out there, famous ones, uh, that don't really make much narrative sense. Um, we, we talked about this in kind of in depth when we were discussing uh, our playthrough of Tomb of Horrors. Mm -hmm. How how the Eserac stacked the dungeon with multiple uh, redundant rooms. Right. Or, and, and or I, how I, White Plume Mountain is three dungeons in one. Right. Uh, and and they really make no sense the the environment the ecology so to speak of of those dungeons are just really weird and sometimes don't get me wrong because white Pool mountain is fun two Horrors is fun but in terms of you know story uh it's very thin mm -hmm. which is i guess what i meant by when i said sometimes you just want to have a dungeon crawl yeah yeah, both of those are famous examples of a wizard did it. Right, you get a wizard did it. But, I mean, if you pick them apart, uh, Tomb of Horrors, I mean, is there a real reason why people would even go in there? Why would Aserach, or Aserach, or however you pronounce it, want people in there? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the only excuse we can think of is that they want to claim some kind of treasure, but I don't he, recall... He eats their souls, right. I guess. Yeah, he's using it for nourishment, but even then, the, the layout of the dungeon really isn't much of a, you know, like a spider's web, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, if, if you want adventurers to discover your tomb so you can eat their souls, why make it so difficult? <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, I mean, Make it I into a honey to, pot. yeah. If I wanted to eat adventures, I'd put a you know big shining sign that says, you know, Asarax magic sword. That's right. <laughs> a huge treasure in here. Just come on in. You have dancing lights and stuff around. <laughs> this way, this way to the magical treasure, ladies and gentlemen. Right. This way. You know, it, it's, it's something like that. And I, I understand originally it was like for a tournament. You know, it was just the dungeon was there. You went into the dungeon and did the dungeon things, and that was it. And it wasn't until later on when they were trying to sell it that they had to have adventure hooks right, to get characters into it. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with White Plume Mountain. You know, we when, when we were researching that, you know, you come to find out that the guy who wrote it wrote it as a resume. Yep. So he stuck as much shit in there as he could. Mm-hmm. This is what I can do, and this is what I bring to the table. And he's room, 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 room. Mm -hmm. Really, no, a, no logic to it. It was just right. like a, you know, a killer dungeon. Uh, yeah, and, um, I would, I would list White Plume Mountain as kind of, almost kind of a masterclass in room design. 
for yeah, for and, and and is it until later when you know TSR is trying to sell the thing that they you know oh okay well you this is why people are going into this dungeon right right and that's one of the things that is suggested in this book is you know you know draw your players in with a reason why you're doing this right there there is like some really good advice for how to uh to be a gm Mm -hmm. um to your group yes um you know know your players know know what they like know what their characters are capable of and play to those strengths and weaknesses Mm -hmm. um there was a particular essay um about challenges where um, it was suggested that make mirrors of your of the characters and have them fight um you know they're opposites yep it doesn't have to be like a physical copy but you know um if you know that the wizard was going to be shooting fireballs all, all over the place you know have the monster he has to fight be resistant to fire or you know immune or, to fire yep immune to fire or uh you know have the have that battle take place in a in you know make it an aquatic creature and the fireballs you know go out you can't cast a fireball underwater or something right like that. so so you're, you're it it is a bit of metagaming on part of the gm when you do that mm-hmm. um yes but all in all it's a game and you want to make the game challenging and exciting no one likes to just go into place and run roughshod over everything and mm-hmm. not have any challenges at all you know it's right. fun the first two times mm-hmm. and and generally that's i know that's how you like to design adventures um where the first ones are kind of like you know gimmies mm-hmm. And then, and then it gets more and more challenging from there on in until finally, like you have stuff where you know the the um, the foes are a little bit beyond the capabilities uh, of what we typically would do. Right. And we have I, to think of a strategy to get around that, mm-hmm. which I think is a great way to design encounters. Um, you know, case in point, uh, the first act climax of our icons game. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. You know, uh, prior to that, that, prior to that, uh, you guys had fought like some minor, some minor villains. Um, you know, a few, you know, henchmen, and then one guy that had powers, um, or some type of weird weirdness. Um, you know, you did that a couple of times. Uh, you fought a villain where you had to work together because there were um, challenges, like the bridge battle. Right, there were bystanders. There and... were bystanders, so you know, and the bridge was about to fall apart. So you know, you had to work together and use your abilities, you know, as a team rather than each of you individually fighting a bunch of guys. Right, um, and climax that with the Eschaton battle where the character was essentially immune to the worst you could do right and therefore you guys had to come up with a way to defeat him 
without, you know, that wasn't just stand there and beat on him till he fell unconscious. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That was my plan. That, that <laughs> was your plan. That was your plan. And, you know, I, there was a plan to it. And, you know, you just guys just had to do what was necessary to figure it out. And, you know, some some GMs will come up with a plan for that and, you know, not give enough clues or not give the right clues to, to solve that problem the other way. Right. Um, but, you know, I actually had to come up with clues almost on the fly, given what you guys were doing. Right. Well, it's always a good idea to have a couple of options available on how to deal with any particular um, situation. Mm-hmm. One like, of the pieces of advice like, mentioned in this book. Right. So, uh, because no matter what you do as a GM, no matter how much you plan, the players are always going to find a way to like go outside of, of your mind and do something that you have not prepared for. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it's inevitable. Yes. Somebody will always do something crazy. Someone will always try and shank their own peaceful doppelganger. Yep. Or, or fire the arrow to try to trip the robot rather than shoot him in the chest. Right. That was really cool, by the way. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's one of the things that, uh, was suggested in this book, I believe in the same essay that you were talking about, about the mirrors, the mirror party, uh, was also think of ways, you know, any given situation, consider two or three different alternatives and, and be prepared for those. But as a GM, you also have to be prepared for the just completely outrageous plan. Right. Now, you had mentioned the, the arrow tripping the robot thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, last night we played uh, Gamma World. And the, the room I designed was like this uh, practice dojo. And with ro- robotic um, practice dummies that attack the party. And it was completely designed to be like just enough um, hit points on those robots to keep you guys busy. Mm-hmm. And that's it was you know it was going to be a straight up fighting encounter, and then you get like weapons and and armor as a result of of getting through it. What I was not prepared for was Matt uh, looking for a control panel to shut them down. Mm-hmm. And to, to be honest, you know, I thought that was a great idea, but I was not going to like get in the way of that, right? But I, but I was completely unprepared for it as well. <laughs> yeah, that seemed that that would seem to me to be the give me situation, and that would be to find the control panel. Um, right. You know, but you handled it well enough on the fly that I thought that that was actually the way you were you had intended it to go. Oh, that's cool. No, uh, to be honest with you, my intention was for the all of the controls to be um, with the final boss. Mm. Um, you know that it was it was its house and it was in charge of everything but you know just like the fact that he did that 
was great. Now it worked once. It wasn't going to work again. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. When he tried to look for a control panel later. Right. I mean, it's only so much you can, you can, uh, get away with. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not like the science. Well, even in, even in a lot of science fiction movies, uh, the death star tractor beam was way into the, the, the building or or the uh in rogue one the transmitter was way out on a catwalk right you know it doesn't make sense as far as you know osha regulations for the empire but <laughs> <laughs> i mean think about it that, that thing the tractor beam had no guardrail on it at all you know he could have just fallen off yep and it was like in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm so it was like I mean normally that goddamn thing would be in the control room that the robots were held up in or mm -hmm. a similar control room. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but you but apparently you couldn't control it remotely. It had to be shut down at the power source. Right. Precisely. R2D2 couldn't do it. But here, here's a map. <laughs> right. Um and it's kind of fun to think about films in that way because that also helps you design encounters. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's another article in here that says borrow heavily from favorite books, favorite films, things like that. Take scenes that you enjoy and you know make them your own and you yeah, well, find a way to put them into the context of your adventure. Yeah, well, both you and I have done that, mm -hmm. um, like repeatedly. Yep. Um, you actually based a part of Nippon no Kage on, um, shoot, I, I keep the um, man with no ears mm -hmm. uh, sequence. I for, keep forgetting the movie. Right. But the, um, the Japanese ghost story. Right. The um, Kwaidan. Kwaidan. Thank you. Um, you did that uh, in Final Flight of Jonathan Roxton. I actually gave you guys a night where it was the film Predator. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's funny because I'm thinking about it and I'm like, oh, yeah, you certainly did. But I, I've never seen Predator. Mm -hmm. But you knew enough about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, and last night there was a short scene from uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, There Will Come Soft Rains. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, let's see. I ripped the train rescue in uh, the Eschaton battle straight from Incredibles 2. Yeah, so you definitely have, have to do, go there, mm -hmm. I think. Um, well, yeah. Now, I mean, now the thing to not do, well, and you can even do this as well if you're clever enough about it, is to look back on old modules mm -hmm. uh, like Tomb of Horrors and White Plume Mountain and take some of the ideas off of those as well. Now, mm -hmm. be careful because, A, some of your players might have actually gone through that. So, you know, tweak it enough so it's not like completely obvious mm -hmm. absolutely um, and, and b uh don't plagiarize 
Right. Don't plagiarize and use things exactly. But, you know, take influence yourself. The um, When we were discussing White Plume Mountain, we talked uh, a lot about the one room where you had to jump on the slippery platforms to cross it. Mm-hmm. And how great of a room that was and different circumstances that you could put that type of encounter in. With geysers. With geysers. You know, so you had a timer, you had, you know, you had to make these skill rolls to jump mm-hmm. uh, from platform to platform. And well, move on. We've all done that in, in one form or another. Um, not that I wrote this, but uh, when we were playing um, uh, uh, Trail of Sathagwa, um, at when you guys were, were um, copying out the ruins on the glacier, the rock on the glacier, mm-hmm. it was that, it's basically a variation of that room. You're making climb skill rolls to get up on the scaffolding and maintain being there while you know rocks are occasionally falling on you or the, there's a chance that the side of the glacier will fall into the ocean mm-hmm. or into the fjord. I mean, it's like kind of that same That same thing. style of room. Uh, right. We did a similar style of room in Cursed Earth uh, where you guys had to descend the rock ledges while the swarm of giant centipedes was coming over the cliff. Right. And and you guys did pretty well with that because the cave entrance was at the bottom of the cliff near the ocean. And you guys had to climb down. So, but, yeah. So, there's, I mean, there's tons of, of use for these old things. Um, if you, if you... I don't know if anybody here watches, um, or if you watch Seth Swarkowski, Swarkowski, his videos. He does um, a lot of um, GM advice videos, especially like for Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. And he um, had a whole thing about, um, you know, the best thing to do is to read old modules. Mm-hmm. You know, run them and read them because you're going to learn. Even if they, if it's not something you would want to run, you could still learn a lot from how they were written. Right. Exactly. Um, now, I think I think I had a couple of points of contention with a couple of the essays. One you already mentioned, uh, the essay that's just basically, you know, every single piece of you know writing fiction advice ever. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I, I agree with you 100%. You can, sometimes less is more, mm-hmm. especially in, in this. No one wants to hear the dungeon master, the GM, prattle on about every detail in the fucking room and every smell. And, you know, it smells like the baked bread from that tavern that you guys used to hang out. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's all well and good. And if you, you know... That's great if you're if you're writing fiction. Mm-hmm. Just tone it down a little, or or it turns into um, fucking wheel of time. But well, yeah, that and that and uh, the more like the example prose took all of the agency away from the players. Right. Um, it told them what they think, how they reacted. You know, I enjoy narrating after you guys act and describing. You know what just occurred and especially if the action was i punched the guy you know right <laughs> so you know depending on the results of the roles 
you know, I go through and I describe, you know, you, you hit the guy, you know, square in the middle of the chest and he flies backwards. Right. I tend to do that as well. Yeah. Uh, um, but even like if you're just walking into a room, mm. you're not seeing that whole room all the time. Mm. And I, what I prefer to do is this, these are the, your initial things that you're going to see when you enter the room. And anything else beyond that, um, if it's not like going to be something completely obvious, especially non-visual senses, right. like odors, um, the, if, if somebody asks or, or if they're not asking about something, maybe make a, a spot hidden roll or whatever the equivalent is mm-hmm. in whatever game you're playing right? to get some of that. Because, you know, there's got to be some mystery and, and the players have to have something to do. Right. You know, oh, okay, well, there's a fountain in the room. I'm going to go check out that fountain. And then you can, like, talk about the fountain. But, you know, it's a waste to just, like, give them all, everything as they, like, walk down the hallway. You enter a large chamber. In the center of the room, there is a fountain carved in a art style not seen in, in a millennium. Figures of nymphs intertwine like the roots of a tree and each figure is covered in mold from centuries of water running over it. And, you know, you, yeah, you don't need to hear that right off the bat. No. You walk and if you, room, if you do, you basically, you know, you, you're, you've taken agency away from the players because, you know, my character doesn't give a shit about the fountain. My character is looking to see if there's any, you know, any pressure plates on the floor, <laughs> that Traps. kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not going. To, and you're drawing attention to the fountain, um, which may or may not. Yeah, may or may not be something that the characters want to focus on, or that you want them to focus on. Right. Because it might just be a fountain, mm-hmm. or it might be a fountain filled with like you know acid. So yeah, one of the, one of the two things is going to happen. You focus on the fountain. And either all of the players or a good chunk of the players are going to become suspicious of the fountain. Um, other players right. will go like, well, you know, it, you drew too much attention to it. So obviously it's a red herring. So I'm not going to pay attention to the fountain at all. Right, like the fucking beds last night. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I did not trust that narration at all. It was just, it was too comfortable. You know, I would have probably been more inclined to sleep. Well, in the bunkers in in Gamma World, we were doing uh, Legion of Gold, and there's the one sequence where you have you go into the bunkers and there's shabby beds, you know, in an empty room. Yeah, let's sit down and rest. This is perfect. You know, this is this is the type of perfect sleeping accommodations in the apocalypse. Right. We went into the room last night and. You know, everything reminded us of perfect childhood memories. And, and <laughs> After coming bed, through four rooms of doom. Right, four rooms of doom. And each bed was, like, laid out in, in sheets and quilts and things, you know, illustrating some aspect of those perfect childhood memories. And all of us, with the exception of um, Justin Steele, were like, no, this is... But then again, all of the folks who doubted this were also Call of Cthulhu players. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And anytime 
something is pulled out of your head into a perfect situation is, as Matt said, dangerous. Right. But now, to be fair, I wanted, that's exactly what I wanted to happen. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have like something positive in there, but I didn't want you to have it so that it would be a gimme. I wanted you to have to take a risk mm -hmm. or, or a perceived risk to get the reward. Well, the right. reward would have been full hit points. Right. The reward would have <laughs> been full hit points. You know, however, yeah. But no one got full hit points. It seemed very, but it still seemed very, very risky. Right. And, you know, then again, had we done, fared more poorly in the battle with the practice droids, you know, might have been, uh, might have been a little impetus to to actually take the risk as well, right? But we came through that encounter fairly unscathed, right? Thanks and, to and you used a bunch of your, um, you used a bunch of your healing, yeah, MacGuffins. Mm -hmm. I would say the other. Uh, essay that that I would be critical of would be uh, the let's see the one by the guy who writes top secret uh, the the players make your world go round which starts with a list of player categories yeah and I've seen these I've seen these a lot uh, in different you know how to GM style videos. You know how to run a game videos uh, where they go through and they list different types of players and 90% of them are negative descriptions and I think when you sit down at the table and you have these ideas of different kind of categories of play you know it, it, it reinforces that kind of adversarial relationship with a GM right and, you know, sure, you know, being the GM, because the GM has to play all of the adversaries, you know, it can it can be fun. But if that crosses over into the real world and I start basing all my encounters on, you know, <laughs> Steve's play style because he's this certain kind of character, you know, or he plays this certain way. You know, it kind of, you know, it, it kind of takes away from that, that aspect of it. Yes. And the encounter that that one, um, that, that one had as well was, uh, it looked like it was a freaking meat grinder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was totally adversarial. I mean, there was like, it was a railroad. Mm hey. -hmm. Um, you had like these choices that weren't choices. Like you can go um, path A, path B, or path C, right? Right. And they all ended up at the same place. Mm -hmm. And and really, there was a, an encounter that they wanted you. This guy wanted you to have. Right. Um, and the, the rest of them were these, you know, sub encounters that were supposed to um, incorporate different people's interests. Right like whether you are interested in like 
in loot or um, role playing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a there's no way to get all of them, right? Um, and B, it all ends up anyway with a freaking melee at the end mm-hmm. <laughs> against yeah, I, I agree against a completely superior foe. Mm-hmm. Like a yeah. lich, right? There's a right. lich there. And now, it's like, oh, like calmly, there's just a lich there. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, now, but liches are badass. Right. I think that's I think that's a great way to do a campaign, but not like a, a couple of sessions of play. Yeah. No, no, I agree. You have to you have to keep people people's interests. Mm-hmm. You know? And and you can't please all of the people all of the time. Right, but you can please some of them some of the time, mm-hmm. and yeah. So you set up, um, you know, encounters like, oh, Rodney's going to really like this encounter because it's going to involve X, Y, and Z, and this next one uh, is right in Nick's wheelhouse, so he should like that, and oh, and and you know, Lily and West like this kind of stuff, so I'm going to put that there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you put it all in one encounter, it's going to be muddled. Mm-hmm. You know, one or two together is fine. But yeah, over the course of a story arc, you you can incorporate all of that, right? You but can, you, you know, over over a longer session. One, yeah, one encounter—that's ridiculous. You, you you come with like something that doesn't really satisfy anyone, right? You know, and you have one character. You know, you, you create one encounter that, um, but you want to try to incorporate as many of the player's attributes or the character's attributes as possible in any given encounter. Yeah, you might have a puzzle that the smart character figures out, but you kind of need the strong character to uh, make it happen. Right. You know, it's like, yes, we must put this rock over there. <laughs> right. Now, if, if we go back to the encounter... Um, the climax of the first part of of, of the icons game. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly what ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I figure out what we had to do, and then the we had to use the skills of the other of the other three characters to enact that plan. Because once the plan was laid out, um, Kaze was pretty much out of it. There was nothing he can do. <laughs> right. right. He, you had to use him to, um, you know, as a distraction. Well, he didn't have the skills to do any of the stuff that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. He couldn't, he couldn't fastball special anything. He couldn't, right. I mean, I guess he could have ran out um, far enough to get, um, to get that one guy into the strike range, mm-hmm. but he can't fly. So he couldn't be up in the air for that. And you so, hadn't yeah, picked I mean, up and you hadn't picked up the extra to your power that allowed you to run up walls and things. But I don't think he was in, even near a wall or anything. I mean, I guess it could have been done, but really, you know, it, it it his job was done. He figured it out. And then it was up to everyone else to to use their skills mm-hmm. to right. to enact it. I mean it was it was really it was a really cool encounter because of that. Mm-hmm. Everybody oh, yeah. had, it, had something to do. Right, it was laid out. Depended on everyone doing it. Right, in such a way that your character was the most evasive, so naturally he would function as a distraction 
because he could get up in Eskaton's face and come out okay without getting hit half the time. Yeah, right. he's not going to do much damage, but as long as he can keep keep him busy, it gave um, you know. But he was too the character was too strong for one of the strong characters alone to to do it. So both char- strong characters had to work together. Right. Meanwhile, Wes's character, um, who arguably, even though your character is a speedster and your primary power is movement, um, his character re- has the most reasonable way of covering much longer distances quicker since he's a teleporter right so you know you guys had this this idea of picking the 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 big bad was building power and was about to explode right there on the middle of the street so steve figured out that uh what if we you know triggered that power and threw him up high enough one, he takes out uh, the armored blaster character, and this guy explodes. You know, how do we make that happen? And we did it as a series of pyramid tests. You know, you do your part, you make a you know success, and if you guys, everybody gets a certain level of success on their part of the plan, the plan goes off. Right. And, and that's the way it worked. However, I was also... Um, Messing with you guys in the fact that, you know, you were fighting two villains. Right. Uh, both of which a single character had trouble with. Um, you know, the Praetorian in his Iron Man armor gave Lily a run for her money by herself. Right. And, you know, I was happy to use him again in that in that context because, you know, you guys knew you would have to come up with something because... No, none of you could have fought him by yourself, and you couldn't right. have fought Eschaton by yourself. No, I mean and, you couldn't. All four of us couldn't fight Eschaton. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, and and you change up. You know that that character was built with certain abilities to counteract everything you could do, so you would be forced to come up with a plan. Um. And that that's how I like to do things. You know, you, you mentioned it before that I I like villains and, and stuff with tricks involved, that it's not just a straight up beat down encounter. And and that's actually totally appropriate uh for a superhero campaign because that's how villains are created for heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the most part, they you take a character like Batman. You think, what is the opposite of Batman? And right. there's like a turns out there's a bunch of them. Right, there's a bunch of opposites to Batman. Um, but the best ones, the ones that people remember above all else, are opposites in some way, shape, or form to what Batman is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have Two Face, you right. have the Penguin, you have the Joker. You know, these are all characters that are diametrically opposed to one one or two facets of, of Batman's character. Mm-hmm. Then you have a character like um, Hush or, or Ra's al Ghul, who are actually almost completely mirrors of Batman. Right. Um, or uh, what's the other? Prometheus, I mm-hmm. believe, is an anti-Batman. 
Right. Uh, and then you have uh, in the Flash, you have uh, you know all of these characters that somehow impede movement. Right. Which I you know I can't really talk about this too much, Speedster. Um, you know you have Mirror Master. Right. Uh, who uses reflections and a lot of cold villains because because um you know cold slows things slows molecules down right and then some of the flash's greatest villains are cold based captain cold naturally right. is one of the like killer frost people. killer frost um you have gorilla Garage. from from the other jay garrett flash mm-hmm. um then you have characters like gorilla grod who can take over your mind and you know that's not in Barry's power set or Wally's or you know whoever the flash happens to be you know, so how do you beat that well you got to use your other skills right so I mean there's like a huge tradition of creating villains to mirror the heroes mm-hmm. and and it shouldn't just have to be limited to comic books. I mean, it's a, you right. make great, great um, villains. Now, unfortunately, that really only works if you're playing with your friends, right? Well, <laughs> or a regular group, right? If you're writing one pre-gens, right? You have to go with um, if you're writing a villain in a scenario um, that could be played by anyone playing any combination of characters. Um, you have to make it challenging to pretty much any combat. So it has to be like this mastermind villain. Right. Well, I think you take like um, what the the most common archetypes are, Mm. you know, play lowest common denominator that. So like, for example, in D&D, some sort of fighter, some sort of healer, you know, cleric, um, some sort of of magic user and some sort of rogue. That's like your standard basic you know combination if if that's what you're going into a dungeon with you're prepared Mm -hmm. yeah that's the the like in white plume mountain and several other modules they recommend your party they actually recommend your party configuration for ideal play right so you if you're trying to get to design something a little loftier than than playing with your friends Mm-hmm. You, I think you have to go with um, something a little bit more generic and um, make sure that your encounters and your traps and everything are um, met and foiled by more than one way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's the standard rogue way of doing things, of disarming traps, but just make sure there's something else. Make sure there's a, a control panel on the wall. Right. What if, you're, <laughs> what if your rogue calls in sick? Right. somebody doesn't want to play a rogue right because not everybody likes to play rogues no i mean i i happen to prefer playing monks which is mm-hmm. not a recommended class in anything right yeah it's like <laughs> monk i think it's like monk ranger and uh monk ranger druid and bard walk into a dungeon right <laughs> <laughs> and and you have to be as a gm and as a as writing a module for other people to play you have to be prepared for that eventuality that a monk druid ranger and bard walk into a dungeon right you know because you you got it you have to be able to defy the tropes inside your own head 
of mm -hmm. fighter, cleric, rogue, wizard. Yep. Barbarian. Yeah, and 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 you know, it really doesn't go into it like that. I mean, it kind of talks about how you should like have more than one way to 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 get around stuff, but but really, you know, most things are designed with those four stereotypes in mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now if you, if you go into Call of Cthulhu design, where you don't have classes, you, right. could, take a, you could take a lot from that uh, because you're not designing towards classes or anything. You're designing towards, you know, atmosphere and, and um, you know, freaking people out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think we should do an episode on on specifically Call of Cthulhu, you know, in thinking about, you know, encounters and whatnot for that game. Uh, there is one essay in here about atmosphere or atmosphere. atmosphere. That might be the one that, no, I don't think that's the one that name checks Call of Cthulhu. Um, but this one talks about, you know, putting, putting, you know, things in your game to create tension uh, you know you don't know what's on the other side of that closed door right you know you don't know what's going to be lurking about in the room you don't know what's hiding in the bushes of the jungle right which is all true but when it comes to the encounter for that one um it, it once again reads like a uh you know excerpt from a from a from a um forgotten realms book mm. You just have to balance it out, and you well, also. No, I mean, this actually, it literally is just like you know, two pages of of what happens to to these characters, um, right. at railroaded, and then like a little blurb about um, what fungus is, mm -hmm. right? And it really, you know, yes, okay, and it is hard to create that kind of tension in a role-playing game mm -hmm. uh, fear because you know yes um people joke around all the time you know people constantly quoting Monty python mm -hmm. and and goofing off you know does tend to to um cut the tension i guess well, yeah, it, it but, breaks the tension. Plus, you know, in, in a game where you're trying to build up tension, like Call of Cthulhu, you know, unless everyone in your group is a rookie, you know, you know that. Yeah. You know what's going to happen. Something bad is going to but, happen. But here's the thing is so. you can do stuff to create that tension and not have it be, you know um dissipated by you know movie quotes mm -hmm. for example i'll and it wasn't call of cthulhu we'll use gamma world we'll use last night's gamma world game mm -hmm. um after the dojo and you went into the room with the beds there was fear there yeah. was fear i mean you guys like didn't want to go in those fucking beds right and <laughs> and you have to also realize that how the fear manifests it's not always going to be, you know, what is in your head. You know, you don't, you're not going to make your players yeah. scream at the table. 
I mean, but, yeah, I guess you can if you like go off the deep end with triggers and all that crap. Well, but that's kind of cheap, right? Even that, you know, you can't really do. You, know, I believe the atmosphere article mentioned the jump scare. Now, how do you do it? Right, you can't do a jump scare in in a narrative or role playing game. Right. You okay. know, unless unless you're really good at slapping the table. Right. Or something like that at the right moment. And you have to like it, it's a story and it's complicated because you're not your goal isn't to make the players afraid. Mm-hmm. Your goal is to make the interaction between uh, the player and their character tense. Right. Mm-hmm. So instead of like, you guys weren't afraid, but you got like as people. Right. But you didn't want your characters to die by sleeping in beds. So right. there's that tension is there. That's mm-hmm. where it lives to me. Right. And it's, it's, it, it's the tension in a role playing game is about risk versus reward. Right. You know, are the possible risks. And there, and that's also kind of reflects the 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 lighthearted and friendly adversarial relationship between the player and the GM is is the GM is the GM going to screw me over if I decide to sleep in this bed? And and you know part and, of it, and yeah. that's part of the fun. Well, part of it is knowing the um the GM style, mm-hmm. and the GM knowing that you know the GM style, right? Because, I mean, like, when I play Call of Cthulhu, when I GM Call of Cthulhu, I'm kind of a dick. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll admit it. I mean, because I don't want to kill everyone, but I'm, you know, it's Call of Cthulhu. It's right. definitely that, that, a possibility. Right. And and, and, and you waste no uh, effort at all into uh, reminding us of that. That TPK is out there. It can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you and know, I'm I, not going to deliberately make it happen, but if right. your roles fall the right way, it's going to happen. Right. So, and that's where I come from with Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> All y'all, except for maybe Justin, know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But, you know, and, and I guess it's a dirty trick on my book because, like, it's Gamma World, it's goofy, and, you know, it's over the top, but it's, you know, apocalypse sci fi. To me, it's like, you know, just playing um, uh, uh, Fallout, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's fun, but if you want to, if I want to, like, scare you a little, yeah, I'm gonna definitely use my, you know, my reputation. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, probably for the final note, there was an there was an essay early on. I believe it was the first essay uh, that discusses the degrees of separation in, for for writers of uh, fiction, plays, RPGs. Right. And, you know, the fiction writer, the only point of contact is the author, whatever narrative voice they're using, and the reader. Yes. In a play, everything you write is going to be interpreted by the actors. Uh, right. And then, you know, consumed by the audience. In an RPG scenario, it's three degrees of separation. Uh, you have the RPG designer. It gets filtered in through the GM and the system that you're writing for. 
which gets filtered in through the players as the the end consumer of the product. Mm-hmm. And I would I would dare say that what we do on microphones of madness in actual play is actually four degrees of separation, because not only do you have all of the all of the degrees of the RPG designer, but you have another degree because you know the end user of a, any particular session is the audience listening to it. Right. So you have four degrees of separation in actual play. Right. From- it's kind of like a, a stage production of a game. Mm-hmm. It's you know one part one part uh, reality show, I guess. Uh, one part improv theater and, and one part storytelling. So, you know, the GM has to do his job. The players have to do their job. And so the audience gets their just desserts out of it. And a lot of times you can kind of ignore that fourth degree of separation, you know, if everyone's having a good enough time. Because yeah. then, then if everybody's having a great time, and everybody's bouncing off of each other like a great session is, then the there is a strong possibility the audience is entertained. Right. But, you know, I think... Um, and this is one of the problems that we've faced over the years of doing the podcast, is that sometimes the more well-known module gets more attention than something we've wholly we've created whole cloth right because well it's name recognition well name recognition and um, and i think i'd like to think some people want like who are thinking of running that stuff want to know um mm-hmm. what what's other people's take on it is yeah. you know because if you read a lot of of adventure modules or whatever not all of them are written uh specifically <laughs> Yes, you know, there's definitely a lot of room um, to wiggle around in, mm-hmm. you know, and and there's some things that they that they absolutely have to happen, um, and some things like you make happen, right? Just because you know, there's you know five or six people who are going through this, who, you know, whose characters do things that interact with everything else. Mm-hmm. All right, and that about wraps it up for our look at uh, how to write adventure modules that do not suck from Goodman Games. Don't suck. Don't suck. I'm sorry they used the contraction. Um, link will be in the description of the video. Check it out. Um, yeah. yeah, if you have any questions or, or any comments, uh, feel free to send them to us, microphonesmadness.gmail.com. Yeah, uh, hit us up on yeah. Facebook. Or uh, hit us up on Twitter at Moon Knight Heroes, and I'm keep thirty. What's that? I said keep thirty. Yeah, keep thirty luck points, and uh, we'll catch you guys later. Yeah.